And the glory of the Lord went up from the went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. I'm sorry, that was starting in chapter verse 4, chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, keep those Bibles open uh, to Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11. Again, that's 9, or 698 in those Blue Pew Bibles. But before we look there, um, please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you, and we are amazed at how closely uh, you draw to us. We say it all the time when we come to the Lord's Supper, but we are amazed um, that you command us to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, um, it's just unsettling, really, to know that you use us as human beings to communicate who you are. Father, we are overwhelmed with the fact that you have made every woman and man in your image. Father, the gravity of what you have done and the weight of communicating your love to us through incarnated human beings is unsettling. Father, we think of your son Jesus and we think how is it that he had flesh and blood like us? How is it that he completely shared in our humanity? And yet he was also completely God. Father, we come before you and our minds spin with what you are doing. Father, I pray for George and Ezra and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents and their parents whose minds are spinning with the weight of what you have done by giving this covenant family those two boys and by designing it from ages past that George will remember his baptism and you will use that for your holy and sacred purposes. Father, we begin to understand what it means that we live on holy ground and that we worship you 
and we understand a little bit of what it means that you would have said to Moses, take your shoes off because the ground's holy because I'm here. And Father, as Nathan admonished us in the very beginning, Jesus, you are here among us because you promised that we were like living stones and that your Holy Spirit would be sent from the Father and from you and would be among us and unite us. And the weight of this is present. Father, we praise you that it is present not because we feel it, but because you have said it. And in your graciousness to us, there are times when we feel it. And for those times, we are very faithful, thankful. Father, I know that there are women and men here today who are so numb by the realities of life that they're not sure that they feel anything. And Father, we ask that now together we would come to you as one congregation and we would bear one another's burdens before you. Father, we pray for our sisters and brothers that they would experience your presence, your power, your justice, and your mercy in their lives. And Father, for those who are with us who have yet to put their faith and trust in you, Father, this is exactly the place for them to experience you because it is where you have said you are. And so again, we praise you for your presence and we ask for them that they would be convinced by the power of your spirit in their spirits that you, Christ, are the Son of God and that you, Christ, have borne our sins once for all. And Father, that you would set them free. Would this be the day of that new birth that Bryce prayed about? Father, we thank you for your scripture. And we thank you that you have said that we are to see your scripture and interpret our world by it, not the other way around. And Father, we confess that we're overwhelmed when we hear of the most recent wars and fighting and we know that we hear what people choose to let us hear. We know that you know of the wars and fighting that we don't even know about. But we're unsettled this afternoon, and we pray that as we draw into your presence, you would settle us by your very Spirit. And Holy Spirit, lastly, I want to pray, would you please show us Jesus? Would we, to a woman and a man uh, created in your image, would we see Christ and would we be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory and that by the power of the Holy Spirit? I pray this in your name, Jesus, as you have told us at the very throne room of God, the place where we come to receive the grace and the mercy to help us in our time of need. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You guys, we are in the book of Ezekiel. And I can't tell you how many times I have had people comment to me in the last few weeks. I have never heard a sermon series on the book of Ezekiel. And I have to confess to you, neither have I. <laughs> 
And so I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to page 698 if you're using those blue pew Bibles. And if you're not, uh, you're using your own Bible. Find these passages because what I attempted to do with Beth's reading, and it was hard, what I attempted to do was to show you the movement of the presence of God in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Beth read from 10 verse 4. She also read 10 verse 18 and 19. And then she also read from verses in chapter 11, 22 and following. Those are the verses that I chose for her to read because what I wanted you to see is that the glory cloud of God in Ezekiel's vision that God gave him as he took him to Jerusalem was lifting up off of the altar and the cherubim where it rested on the mercy seat and it moved to the outside of the house above the threshold and then from there underneath it moved the cherubim and the glory of God to the edge of the temple and then from there it moved from the edge of the temple out east over the mountain. And you go, Bradley, why in the world are you spending so much time trying to convince us that this movement of the glory of God matters? And this is why. It's just simple. The structure of the book of Ezekiel is about the movement of the glory of God. It is about the movement of the glory of God that is supposed to impress upon us the value of the presence of the Lord. Remember the theme that we've been using. And if you don't remember, you can just turn in your order of worship to the page where it's printed for you. It's right there on the back of page, let me tell you, 14. And the theme is the ever-present. What is the presence of the Lord? The ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to his people. Those of you who I know to be children of God, to be Christians, to be those who are called after the name of Christ, I long for you to know the life-giving power of the presence of God and the strengthening power of the presence of God in your life. That's how I pray for you every week in this sermon series. And today, what I want you to think about for a minute, as you see the presence of God lift up out of the center of His temple and move outside and ultimately over the mountains to the east, that you would ask yourself, what is it about the presence of God that is supposed to generate awe in me? How does the presence of God generate awe in us? And I want to tell you two ways that it happens, just two, all right? I'm first going to show you that the presence of the Lord generates awe in us by His enacting His justice. But it also generates awe in us by Him enacting His mercy or His steadfast love. That's all I want to show you in these few verses the first of those two things that is awe-inspiring, that ought to engender awe in us, is that the presence of the Lord engenders that awe through His enacting of His justice. And we see this in these movements of the Holy Spirit. Nathan told you that chapters 9, 10, and 11 belong together, and they're the only three chapters that we're actually giving three sermons to. From here on out, we're going to take large chunks because Ezekiel has an aha moment today, and I'm hoping for us 
I have prayed for you and me that we too would have an aha moment in this book of Ezekiel and realize, wow, I never knew how much I needed this. All right, so the first one is in chapter 9, verse 3, where it says that the cloud of the glory of the Lord rose up. And Nathan told us last week that when it rose up, God pronounced the first act of judgment on Jerusalem. Do you remember this? In chapter 9, he said that it rose up, and you can see it right there on, on, in chapter 9 of your Bible, after verse 3, that the, that the cloud rose up, and God called six individuals to slaughter, and they gave them weapons of slaughter, and one individual to mark people in the city. And the people who mourn and sigh over the, it, it, over the idolatry of Israel, and that those would be spared. And then they were sent out. And almost immediately, the one that was marking people came back. And in verse 8 of chapter 9, you saw how Ezekiel fell on his face before God. And he actually says this in verse 8 of chapter 9. He says, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? The pouring out of his justice on Jerusalem was building in Ezekiel awe. And God responds to Ezekiel and he says, look, the guilt of the house of Israel is, is, is real. And in verse 10, he says this, and it's, it's a powerful consideration to consider about God. As for me, God says in verse 10, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. God is telling Ezekiel, those who have rejected me and chosen idolatry instead, I'm going to take their choice and bring the implication of that onto them. They are going to receive my justice. And that's awe-inspiring. The second one happens in 10.4, right? In 10.4, we read again that Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord, that it had gone up from the cherub, this mercy seat in the center of the, of the tabernacle, and it had moved out to the edge of the house. And with it, the cherubim that held the, the, the throne of God, and that together it was moving away from the center where God had always called people to himself, but those people who had rejected him, God is now rejecting. And it's awe-filled. It's awful, isn't it? There, it says that the glory of the Lord and the cherub rose up from the house and started to rise up from the earth. And there, God commanded the one that had the writing instrument in his hand and who was clothed in linen to go into the cherubim and to receive from them coals and to spread the coals out over Jerusalem. It was the second round of judgment, right? And it meant that Jerusalem was going to burn. And indeed, that's what happened in the siege when Babylon came and attacked Jerusalem. But what's interesting is if you look at verse 15, chapter 10, verse 15, for the first time, Ezekiel says, and the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kabar Canal in chapter 1. Ezekiel is going, wait a minute, those were the living creatures. If you go back to chapter 1, he describes what he saw, and he never calls them cherubim. Now he goes, I see that they're cherubim, and wait a minute, I saw them in Babylon. He's beginning to understand what God is showing him. 
In verse 18, there is the third of these four movements of the glory of God away from his people. And in verse 18, it says this, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim, along with the glory of the Lord, lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out. And the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, at the east gate of the temple. They stood there. And if you read chapter 11, you see that this is the third time that God pronounces judgment on Jerusalem. And this time he does it on the princes of Jerusalem. He rebukes them for their arrogance, saying essentially, we're the most important people in this city and we're blessed and nothing's going to happen to us. And God says, that's not true. Because you have rejected me, I'm going to reject you and you're not the most important people in the city. In fact, I'm driving you out to destroy you, is what he tells them in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 11. But what's interesting in verse 20 of chapter 10, before that, Ezekiel has seen this movement, and, and it's almost as if he forgot that he just told us how he understood who these folks were. Look at verse 20 of chapter 10. He says, These are the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kabar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Now the lights are coming on for Ezekiel. He's understanding. I, I see what's happening God is showing me how he left the temple and moved out and judged Jerusalem, and he has moved. And the last of this aha moment is in verse 22. Look at what he says. He says it a third time. When a prophet says something three times in a row in the same little discourse, that's the way we go, we got to pay attention to this. Verse 22 of chapter 10, he says, "...and as for the likeness of their faces..." They were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Kabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. The lights have gone off for Ezekiel. And Ezekiel has seen God's judgment over Israel. And now he has put together that the glory of the Lord, along with these cherubim, are the same image that he has seen in Babylon and his fear rises, and he asks the same question a second time. Look at it. I read it to you from chapter 9. Now look at it in chapter 11. He asks the same question in verse 13. He says this, Then I fell down on my face, and I cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? You see, Ezekiel is realizing what the image was in chapter 1. It is God and his throne that was brought to Babylon. And God has said, the glory of the Lord that you saw in Babylon, Ezekiel, is the glory of the Lord that judged the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it. And Ezekiel is fearful because he's going, have you now come to Babylon to judge us as well? Are you going to wipe out all of the remnant? Is that how this story goes? And Ezekiel is thinking to himself, if that's what is unfolding here, my life just got a lot worse. As if Ezekiel's life couldn't get worse. Do you remember all the play acts that we told you that he had to do? How he had to lay on his side, how he had to eat siege rations, how he starved himself to death, how, how his life was overcome with the illustration both of how God's anger and of the people's suffering and being the sacrifice. Remember that? 
But now Ezekiel is afraid that the glory of the Lord has come to Babylon only to destroy them. You know more of the story than Ezekiel did. Remember that. But here's where we don't remember. We think that what it means to be filled with the awe-inspiring power of God is to grasp his justice. And I want to tell you that is part of it, but that is not all of it. For those of you who wonder if the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, you might contemplate these three chapters and go, see, I told you, that's who God is. He's a God who destroys. But the story doesn't end here. The story of the movement of the presence of the Lord has one more movement, and that is found at the end of chapter 11. And what I want to say to you is the second point, that the presence of the Lord generates awe in us both through his justice and through his mercy, his steadfast love. And it's right here in Ezekiel. It's right here in the Old Testament, you guys. And in fact, it is here, and it's why John, the gospel writer, uses Ezekiel, not only in the gospels, but also in the book of Revelation. Because he's like, it's the same God that made himself known to us, you guys. And look at what he says. Again, chapter 11, verse 13. Ezekiel's fallen down on his face. He's like, I figured it out. You have come to Babylon and you're going to destroy it all. And God answers Ezekiel in verses 14 and 15. And he explains to them that those who have kicked him out of Jerusalem, those who have stayed and have let the remnant go, that God is actually going to destroy them. And he said, I'm going to because they have chosen idolatry over me. I'm giving them what they want. But then in verse 16, he says this, and therefore, and remember when Ezekiel was told, therefore, thus says the Lord, that's what he's supposed to say to people, remember? Remember that in chapter one, we read that. And here it says, and therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries. Read this with me. This is unbelievable. Pay attention. Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. The presence of the glory of the Lord generates awe in us, both by his justice and by his mercy. God tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I have come to Babylon because I am a sanctuary for my people there. And I am calling them to myself and I have a plan to bring you back. God's mercy pursues his people. 
So that Beth read for us, finally in verses 22 and 23, then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And there the Spirit lifted me up and brought me, to, and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea or Babylon to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. He's no longer in a vision. And I sat and I told all the exiles everything I had seen. The presence of the glory of the Lord leaves the center of the temple because his people have left him there. But as he scattered the remnants to the countries, he went up and to the east, which is where Babylon is in reference to, the Israel, or to Israel. God's mercy pursues his people. The Lord and the glory of the Lord goes up and to the east in pursuit of his people to the exiles. And we're told in that last verse that Ezekiel goes back to tell all the things that the Lord has shown him. That is the movement of the glory of the Lord and it's that movement that helps us understand the very structure of the book of Ezekiel. So what are our takeaways from that? I simply want to say these three quickly. We were made to behold the glory of the Lord. That might be an aha, or it might be duh. But what this shows us is that we were made to behold the glory of the Lord. God called or caused his glory to dwell among the center of his people. Ever since he called the Israelites out of Egypt, it was the center of his people where he put the tabernacle and the glory cloud of God rested there. We were made as human beings to behold the glory of the Lord. I was in Vermont this weekend. Bleas were absolutely beautiful. It rained like cats and dogs. So if you went up there for leaf watching, you got washed out. I'm sorry about that. But we were up there, and it reminded me of what so many of my friends tell me. And a lot of my friends in Newton tell me this. Hey, the mountains and the ocean, that's my church. That's where I worship. That's where I go, and I get recharged. And I want to say, yes, that is glorious. In creation, all of creation, every part of creation that God created, he created it with the intent that that bit of creation would bear some part of him to be known. That is so true. Creation is incredible. Every part, from this dog sugar that Mita and I can't get over, to the beautiful mountains, every part. But you guys, there is nothing in creation that has revealed the heart of God for us until he pursued us and came and bore our image. Just a minute on that. Second mistake, we often mistake what awe is. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news. Um, my brother loves you too, and because of that, I love you too. And my brother, two Fridays ago, ended up in Las Vegas because you too built this thing called the Sphere. Have you read about this thing yet? It's this massive musical venue. 
and it seats like 18,000 people. It is this ball that I can't remember, 600 feet wide or something like this. And the idea is, is that you go in this and not only does it have perfect sound, but it also has this most incredible surrounding graphic of all of it. And it's this complete and total immersion. I remember my brother describing it to me. He goes, it was, it was beyond epic. I don't know what to tell you. He said it was, it was literally awe-inspiring. And, and I was thinking about this text, and I was like, oh, really? That's wild. And, in, and in actually in the concert, Bono said at one point, of how awe-inspiring the place was, he goes, ladies and gentlemen, it is true, Elvis has not left the building. And you know that that means in our vernacular, right? In our vernacular, it means that all of the awe and the glory of the king is here, is what he was saying. And see, we mistake what awe is. Awe is that which we think glorifies us. But Ezekiel teaches us that awe of God and being moved in awe at the presence of the glory of the Lord means that we see his justice and his mercy together, not separate, but together. And if we've never known the heart of God before we saw him pursue us in our own flesh, where have we seen the justice and the mercy of God together? The cross. The cross where Jesus, 100% man and 100% God, bears the justice and the wrath of God that is rightly ours so that you and I might receive the mercy of being washed clean from our sin that we might know that. And the last takeaway is simply this, you guys. Our God is a God who pursues us. We get to talk one more time about the glory of the Lord because the promise isn't just that he's going to be with them. You know that in chapter 11 is the first time we hear, and I will give them a new heart and a new spirit. I get to give you that next week. But this week, I want you to think about this for a minute. The God of the Old Testament is the exact same God of the New Testament who pursues us, who goes into the far country after us, who brings us back and comes to us, so that the gospel writer of John would say in John 1 of Jesus, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. And so that Paul might write in Colossians of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does the presence of the Lord do for us? It ought to be awe-inspiring as we see both his justice and his mercy 
intertwined for his glory. We see that also at the table. Will you please pray with me as we go there?